Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 30th, 2009, and my guest is Megan McArdle. Her blog is Asymmetrical Information, which can be found at theatlantic.com. Megan, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. Our topic today is debt, both uh, personal and national, and we'll focus on the personal at least to start with. We'll see how far we go. I, I want to start talking about my dad, whose first reaction to the current crisis was that we've obviously learned now that debt is a bad thing. Now, the economist in me laughed. <laughs> debt a bad thing? Come on. Debt's what allows businesses to thrive. It lets us own houses. But having read your recent piece on Dave Ramsey and your personal experience as well as thinking some more, maybe maybe my dad, as, as always, uh, might be onto something and might be right. So tell us about uh, Dave Ramsey and your experiences with, uh, with debt. Uh, well, um, I will actually start out with my experiences with debt, and uh, I have quite a lot of it. I got an MBA from the University of Chicago in uh, between 1999 and 2001, which cost about $100,000 when you factor in living expenses and, and foregone income and so forth. A bargain so, at twice the price, of course. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but I expected to make my first job out of business school was supposed to pay $125,000 a year. So I expected to be able to pay this off pretty quickly, and that's what a lot of people do. Um, and so business school students tend to live a lot better than other graduate students do. Maybe law students live about as well. You know, most graduate students are sort of taking a, a vow of poverty, whereas we we went to Cancun over spring break one year yeah. <laughs> with a lot of people from my class. Um, you know, I, I, had a, I bought a car because I lived in Chicago, and it was cold and, and hard to walk around. Um, I, I lived up to well over my income, which was basically limited to what I got from being a summer associate at Merrill Lynch one summer. Um, and so I graduated with a great deal of debt, including some credit card debt, because of course, you know, why not? I had a signing bonus coming. I had a job all lined up with a management consulting firm. Well, why not is that the management consulting firm was imploding. It was 2001. They were focused on tech, and the tech community was not interested in hiring consultants because they were mostly going out of business. So I ended up living in New York. I had to go start working at the World Trade Center disaster recovery site, waiting for my job to start. Um, And that was a great experience. I'm really glad I did it. But I was down there for a year because eventually they just called us and said, look, you don't have a job. We're firing the entire associate class. None of my the members of my associate class ever worked a day at this firm. And so I had a miserable next few years. When I finally did get a job, uh, my first job at The Economist paid $40,000 a year. Now, I'd had work in between that. I was doing consulting work and I was doing some technology work, but my first real permanent job paid less than a third of what I'd been expecting. Uh, and, of course, trying to make my $1,000 a month of student loan payments on top of what it cost to live in Manhattan, which is where the job was, 
uh, or New York City, anywhere, really. And then, you know, food, I think I had about $250 a month for everything, for my Metro card to get to work, for my food, for any spare clothes, drugstore items, my electricity bill, everything I had, almost no free cash flow. You probably had a very inadequate parking place that you were renting at the same time <laughs> I was, for the car I was, you couldn't afford. <laughs> um, no, I sold the car. Actually, right. my sister totaled the car, oh, which was lucky. good. Yeah. yeah, it was actually very lucky because I got to take it. It was a pain in the... It was a pain to have in Manhattan anyway, so she'd taken it down to grad school with her, and then she totaled it, and I got $4,400 from the insurance company, and you can rest assured that immediately went to pay off debt. Um, But, you know, it took me years first to pay off the credit card debt, and I did that while I was still living at home with my parents, and then to start just nibbling away at this mountain of student loan debt. And over the next few years, I did. Every time I got a raise, the money went into... Uh, paying down more debt. If I got a bonus, if I did a freelance piece, everything went into it. Did you think but about? Was, did you think about not paying it? Uh, well, you can't not pay it. Student loan debt is basically not dischargeable in bankruptcy unless uh, you are permanently disabled. Uh, there are like a very few rare circumstances under which you can discharge it in bankruptcy, or whether it, or where it can be forgiven. But otherwise, uh, the federal government has made sure it's like with tax debts. You can't discharge them in bankruptcy either, except under certain very specific conditions. And so there was no point in in declaring bankruptcy. But no, I didn't. My family would have died if if I had ever ever considered declaring bankruptcy. My grandfather, who was still alive at the time, uh, would nonetheless have started rolling over in his grave. And it it wasn't even on my radar. All I knew was I was living this weirdly poor life where I had an income that by most of America's standards was certainly adequate, if not lavish. Um, I did have to live in New York, but I could have gotten by if I hadn't had this $1,000 a month going out. And so I was freelancing like mad, trying to get cash in. And I got raises, and eventually it sort of stabilized. But it took a really long time to get back to the point where I had substantial cash in the bank. You didn't spend uh, a lot of vacations in Cancun, presumably. I did not spend no. any vacations in Cancun. I didn't have a vacation. I didn't have new clothes, really, uh, which started to be a problem. Um, you know, women's clothes are not made to last, on average, five to ten years. And it got to the point where the last piece of new clothing I had bought was five years old, and things were stained, and they'd stretched. And they, but I, I didn't have any cash. And so, you know, I, my parents would, instead of giving me Christmas presents, they'd give me a little payment for my student loan. And, um, and eventually I paid off the highest interest one and I consolidated others to the point where it now actually almost doesn't make sense to pay off my last student loan because the interest rate on it is 2.025%, which at most times, you know, it's free money because inflation is usually higher than that. So it was, it was a painful process, um, and this is the real issue is that debt sort of magnifies our fortunes. When things are going well, debt allows us to live even better. But when things are going badly, debt can become catastrophic. And, and it's, a, it's, a great, um, it's a great behavioral challenge for most of us who live through mostly good times to remember that lesson. Um, Going back to my dad, who's I'm sure I've mentioned before, he was born in 1930. So he has a natural suspicion, which will 
uh, last him all his life. He's he's 79. I don't think he's going to recover from it anytime soon. He has a natural suspicion of debt, the stock market. Um, it's um, You go through those experiences. They, they shape you, and you're probably shaped to some extent now from those, those struggling years. But most people your age and most people 10, 20 years older than you never experienced those bad times and never worried about the consequences of taking out too many credit cards or borrowing too much money. Exactly. And, you know, we as business school students, we have access to all of these theories about economics. And one of them, you know, income smoothing, consumption smoothing. Uh, this is really common. And now I wrote about this in the piece that, that we're going to discuss in just a second. Um, and I wrote about how, you know, we read Kotlikoff and Friedman and other people saying uh, we, should consu- we should smooth our consumption. We don't have any money now, but we're, we're making an investment in our education, and so it's okay to sort of transfer consumption from the future to here because otherwise we'd have to consume very little and we'd be miserable, whereas taking a few thousand dollars from my lavish management consulting salary in, in you know, 10 years, that's not a big deal. And, and Kotlikoff actually wrote in, uh, to the Atlantic, and I'm going to publish a response to this uh, in the next issue, and said, this is not what I said. And I said, <laughs> <laughs> and this is true. This is not what he said. And, and what, I'm, you know, what I'm going to say in the, uh, in, in the response is, yes, we were grossly abusing the theory of the permanent income hypothesis and the theory of consumption smoothing. Um, this is not to say that we were taking good advice from economists. Rather, it's to say that in the hands of someone who already wants to do something, a little bit of knowledge is an incredibly dangerous thing. Yeah, well, smoothing is soothing, you know? It, it, <laughs> it, it kind of makes the it, – it justifies lots of um, misbehavior if you're not careful. Exactly. So I've arrived at the age of, of 36 with not that much debt, but I have a car loan and I have a student loan. And by the standards of the United States, this is not – all that surprising. You know, consumer debt is very common. Auto debt is very common. Uh, student loans are very common. I don't have credit card debt, uh, thank God. <laughs> I can't even imagine what my life would be like if I had, um, you know, some of you see the people on the personal finance shows or Dr. Phil or, or what have you or in the newspaper, and they, they make $40,000 a year and they've got $60,000 in credit card debt. Mm. And their lives are much worse than mine was because, you know, how do you climb that mountain? It's, it's really difficult. So what Dave Ramsey does, actually, and, and to get into the, um, the article we've been talking about or sort of skating around, what Dave Ramsey does is he counsels those people. Um, he is not entirely aimed at people who have uh, taken the wrong lesson from the availability of easy credit, yeah. uh, but for a lot of people who find it too hard to stay on a budget, to save, to to not use debt, to finance everything with cash, he's, um, he's sort of a, a minister to them. And, and I actually use that word very carefully because Dave Ramsey is an evangelical. And actually his main distribution network until somewhat recently was churches. His Financial Peace University, uh, which is the 13-week course where you watch a video and then you do workbooks with a discussion group, uh, mostly happens through churches. It's also on military bases, and, and there's a version in high schools and so forth. But he grew in the evangelical community, and he's now starting to come out of the evangelical 
community and go wider, go to a wider audience. And I think that this is a time when a lot of us are just oversaturated with credit and a lot of us are overextended that more and more people are listening. He's a crossover hit. Exactly. <clears throat> to be, yeah. So, so tell us what his, uh, what's his message? Uh, well, Dave Ramsey has a pretty simple message, which is you shouldn't borrow money for anything. Yeah, that's pretty straightforward. Um, he, he, it, I went to see him in Detroit. I'd become interested in him much earlier than this, and my fiancé, God bless him, really put up with hours and hours and hours of watching Dave Ramsey's show on, on Fox Business Network and listening to the podcast in preparation for going to Detroit and writing this article. Um, so I knew a bit about him, but I was not prepared for how religious the overtones are of, of his speaking event. Where did you see, um, where did you see him? Where I, was, I saw him in Detroit. So in, uh, at a, it's an ice skating rink in Plymouth, Michigan. Okay. It's a minor league ice hockey team. And not, they put, not a church. No, not a church. Uh, because it's too big to, to fit into all but the largest med- Maybe Joel Austin's church in Dallas could fit the group that was there. It's huge, huge number of people, thousands. Um, and he talks about his core message really is he built up a leveraged real estate empire in the 80s and then lost it all when credit started to contract at the end of the decade. And he says that in his darkest hour, right after he had to declare bankruptcy, he came upon a Bible verse, the borrower is a slave to the lender. And he decided at that moment, never borrowing money again. And that's his core message, is that as long as you've borrowed money, you are in slavery to the person you've borrowed money from. They can always push you into bankruptcy if you don't pay. They can do terrible things to you. I and wonder, so you. I wonder how China feels about that message, but we'll come back to that later. <laughs> Seriously, we, I hope we will. But so, so he came upon this biblical verse. He could have just as easily come upon um, a copy of if, if the Gideons put Shakespeare into hotel rooms. I guess he could have stumbled on Polonius's advice to Laertes: "Neither a borrower nor a lender be." Right. Right. It's a it's well, a common thread in Western civilization that borrowing and lending is is a little bit risky. Uh, yes, and in fact, um, I have to say so. His core program is built off of that. He basically sets up these what he calls baby steps that take you from being typical American with a car loan and a student loan, and maybe you only have a few thousand bucks in the savings uh, account. And, you know, it's amazing to me, actually, to see when I started doing this article how many people live paycheck to paycheck. Even among people who make more than $100,000 a year, three out of ten of them say that they live paycheck to paycheck and they don't know if something bad happens, they're they're in big trouble. Um, but, and, but you know, people below that income level, it's a majority say they live paycheck to paycheck. Um, and so you start at this point where you've you've got no money and a lot of debt, and you build your way up through these baby steps to a point where you have no debt and a lot of money. And the first baby step is just. Saving if that is well, the first baby there's baby step zero for people who are actually delinquent and in real trouble is get current. But once you've gotten to there, and most people are current on most of their debt, then you save up a thousand dollars in an emergency fund, and then you start paying down all of your debt as fast as you can, and you use a very common technique called a snowball, uh, where you pay the minimums on everything except your smallest debt, 
and you pay that down as fast as possible, and then you take the, all of the payments from that, and you roll it over into the next debt, pay that down as fast as possible, take those two minimum payments, and so on until you've, you've paid off all of your debt. Then he says you should save a three- to six-week uh, emergency fund, three- to six-month emergency fund, rather, uh, and then start putting 15% into your 401k, uh, start saving for college if you have kids, um, and then, you know, eventually, and then pay off your house. The one kind of debt he will allow people, there's two kinds of loans you can take out if you're a Dave Ramsey follower. One is if you've got a big fancy car or a boat and the asset is worth less than the value of the loan, as it almost always is, um, and the payment is killing you, you are allowed to sell that asset and take out a bridge loan for the, the deficit. Um, the other kind of debt you can take on is a mortgage, but only a mortgage that is a 15-year fixed-rate mortgage where the payment is only 25% of your income. And if you look at the normal way that people buy houses, yep. you know, that's, that's a very conservative mortgage, and then you're supposed to pay that off as quickly as possible. So you get to a point, hopefully in your 30s or 40s, where you own your house free and clear, you've gotten no debt payments, every, you buy everything in cash, um, and you can start giving a bunch of the, your money away, you can start playing and going on vacations and spending it on yourself. Um, you can, you know, put it to work and generating more money. That you, You're able to do all of these things once you've gotten to the point of what he calls financial freedom. And talk about your personal and your personal experiment then. Oh, and don't forget the envelopes, by the way, because I really like the envelopes. <laughs> yes. this, is, this is how he recommends doing it. He says you have to cut up your credit cards. Um, we didn't actually cut up our credit cards because I use a credit card to travel for work, as does Peter. Uh, but we don't use our credit cards unless we are going on a work trip because I don't feel like making an interest-free loan to my company. Um, but other than that, um, we don't use them. And what you do instead is you pay cash for as much as possible. And this sounds crazy, especially if you're someone who makes more than you know $1,000 a month. To, to pay cash for all of your variable expenses sounds and looks a little insane. But what he argues is that when you're actually paying cash, it hurts because you're seeing the money leave your wallet. And you can physically see your budget dwindling. So what you do is you take the cash and you have your fixed expenses, your rent or whatever. Those get paid automatically by your bank or you write a check for it once a month. But the other expenses... Things like your gas, your groceries, your eating out, your, your going to have drinks with a friend, going to movies, uh, your parking, health care, whatever. Your clothes. <laughs> yep, clothes. You budget at the, end of, at the beginning of the month, you sit down and you do a written budget where you take all of the income you expect to have coming in in the month and you do what he says, give every dollar a name. And it has to be in writing. So, you know, we use a computer program that allocates it automatically so you can see how much you have left. And then at the end, when we're done, we put the rest of the money into savings because we're, we're getting married in six months and we have a wedding to save for. Yeah. Um, and then you go and you take out this gigantic wad of cash. Um, we do it biweekly because I don't want to have that much cash in the house. Um, but... Even so, when you think about all of the things you do for your gas and your parking, you know, it's $1,000. So when you say so, when you say give every dollar a name, you mean you, you, you create a category for every you expenditure? Create a, exactly. You create a category and you put an amount. 
And, you know, when you're a couple, the the rule is you can't change it unless you both agree. I mean, in a real emergency, right, you could take the the baby is needs to go to the doctor right now and he's dying or whatever. Obviously, you take the baby to the emergency room. But otherwise, um, you know, if I realized I need a dress for an event that I have later in the month and we forgot to budget for that, I have to go to Peter and say, I, we need to change the, the clothing budget. And it all sounds just incredibly annoying. And then you've got these big envelopes. There's an organizer that uh, that I got because as part of the part of my research, I registered for his website for a year, mytotalmoneymakeover.com, and part of your membership is they send you this, this organizer. Um, and it has, you label your envelopes, it's got little spaces to write down what you've spent, so you always know how much you have left in the envelope. And I was a little skeptical that this was going to work. Well, it sounds horrifying It sounds to those of us who live, I, mean, I, I just have to confess <laughs> before we continue that um, I haven't balanced my checkbook since... Uh, I think it was about 1983. Um, I have actually never balanced my checkbook. Okay. I've always used okay. online banking to watch my transactions. Yeah. Uh, but. So I'm, I'm just not good at, at that kind of phenomenon. I think many people are not. So there's no doubt that it would probably work. The hard part is sticking to it. So you've been sticking to it, right? Yes. Uh, although we, we had a month where we didn't. Oh, uh, my we gosh. Did our, yeah, we just did our December budget, uh, but we had one month where we couldn't. I was traveling three out of four weekends, and so they're just getting into the same place. So, and finally, we just gave up and said, "Okay, we're starting over in November." I hope Dave um, isn't listening. <laughs> I don't know if he's an econ talk fan, but we're, we're going to find out. I have a feeling. Well, I mean, this is actually this is something that happens, and he says, "You know, your first three months of budgeting, you're going to be terrible at it." Um, but here's what happened to us. And first of all, um, it's very hard to spend cash. He's right. You every time you think about it. It's not just a, you know, handing over your ATM card. You have to look at the envelope and say, well, I allocated myself $100 for what they call blow money, which is everything, you know, gifts or... The, the residual, your, yeah. <laughs> um, or, you know, a latte or whatever. And I've only got $100. And so do, do I really want to spend five of my $100 on a latte? Not really, because there might be something really great I'm going to want later and I can't have it because it's not in the budget. Um, and so what ended up happening was I had money left over in each envelope because every time it got low, I would panic and just be like, okay, we're eating pasta for the rest yeah, of the week. Yeah, there you go. Um, and it's actually, the, it sounds incredibly annoying. I mean, I, I can't, I know how this sounds because when I listened to it, it sounded incredibly annoying and it sounded like it took up a lot of time and it was going to be terrible and I was going to hate it. And actually what I found... It's all true. <laughs> no, it does. It, 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 right? um, and I am really not an organized person at all. Um, but actually, part of the great thing is, if you want a budget, um, and we do for a bunch of reasons, it's actually, it makes budgeting really easy. Because I never have to, like, track it. Right? I don't have to do anything. I have the cash in the envelope. If the cash is in the envelope, I can spend it. If the cash is not in the envelope, I can't spend it. Um, I'm actually pretty lax about writing down how much I've spent. Just because, except for our groceries, you know, which are hundreds of dollars, no, no one envelope has a ton of money in it. So I can right. always just count the money and see how much is left if I'm worried. How many envelopes do you have? I've got ten. Do you carry yeah, them? Do you carry them around with you? Um, no, um, they are in our house in a hiding place, um, and I take I, I carry it to go grocery shopping. If I'm going to go and do a, a bunch of errands, I will carry the envelopes with me. All of them. Otherwise. 
I know I have to do parking today. I take the money out. You know, I put it back in if I don't spend it um, or whatever. But what's cool, what's fascinating about this, uh, and I, and I want to get into the general issue in a minute about how we constrain ourselves uh, when we're struggling with our appetites. But what, what's fascinating about it is the usual suggestion on budgeting is you save your receipts, uh, you save your credit card receipts at the end of the day, end of the week, end of the month. You make sure that you're staying on track. But this cash in the envelope thing is a brutal, brute force uh, method for staying on track. Yeah, because I'm, I'll tell you right away, anything that requires me to save all of my receipts and sit down yeah, and top it all happen. up, not going to happen. Yeah, me neither. Uh, although every once in a while I've tried. The, the, but the point of this, which is the, you know, the feature and the bug, obviously, is that when you're walking to the meeting – and uh, you see on the way uh, some really attractive fill-in-the-blank, latte, camera, clothes, ticket, whatever it is. You don't have the envelope with you. You can't have it, right? You can't borrow from uh, different envelopes. I mean, I, I could. I could transfer money. But I have, in fact, when, one day when I was out oh. um, shopping for – I was shopping for a gift for Peter, and I uh-huh. realized it was our anniversary, and I needed a dress to wear on our anniversary. And so – um, I took my I took my parking money, decided not to drive to work that month, <laughs> mm-hmm. and spent it on a fairly inexpensive dress. It was actually very funny because I'm trying to check out in this better dresses section, and the woman I don't know if she was new or she'd clearly never done a cash transaction because <laughs> what I bought was on deep discount, and most of the, the things in there cost three, four, five hundred dollars or more. So people aren't walking in with Generally, a hunk of yeah. cash and, yeah. and slapping it down. So she kind of didn't know what to do with it. And it took her a little while to figure out how to open the register. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's called legal tender, which I think <laughs> is supposed to mean it can be exchanged for stuff. Uh, with right. The, you know, but that is hard. Yeah, it's fascinating how that's become less prevalent. But in general, no, you can't. But it's actually, I have to say, I was what I was really surprised by and the reason we're still doing it Um is A, how easy it was once you've done the budget, and B, how great you feel. And this is, again, I don't think anyone's going to believe me. Everyone listening to this is going to be like, this is crazy. She's some sort of you know brainwashed cult member. But what it is is that once you've agreed on it and you're looking at how much are we saving, what's, you, you feel authorized to spend whatever you have. It's not like this guilty sensation of going and buying a dress because – you know, I really shouldn't, but I really want it. You know, there's none of that. If the money's in there, I'm allowed to spend it. And I don't have to answer for how I spent it. I don't have to, um, either to me or to Peter or to anyone else, is that, that that serene feeling of knowing that every dollar that you're spending is a dollar you can afford to spend, that it's okay to spend, and all of the money that you're not spending is where it should be. It's in your bank, and it's doing its thing. Um, to, to be intentional, and that's, he says this word over and over again, and this really is the key to it. It's being intentional about your money. Um, it was just incredibly, incredibly freeing, um, and it made a lot of things easier. So, yes, you don't buy the camera um, that you wanted. But, well, I've had a lot of impulse purchases that I've really loved. Um, I have a ridiculously large television that I bought by accident. Um, because I, I kind of didn't understand how big a 50-inch television was going to be. Um, yeah. And I love it. But in general, you know, those things, there's a little high that comes from having a new toy, and then, you know, you got a camera. 
Um, whereas having this sense of freedom around your money that I think not that many people in America have anymore um, is, is, I think, much more valuable. Uh, you could say it's priceless, but that would conflict with the slogan of a, of a <laughs> product that's on the other side. It's not, just a couple footnotes, and then I want to turn to the more general issues. Um, sure. First of all, this is not a, an ad for the uh, Dave Ramsey system. No. Uh, we, we don't know how uh, Megan's going to turn out, and we also, of course, don't know how her colleagues in the or associates or whatever nice name they give them in the hockey rink, um, how they're turning out. That would be an interesting follow-up, of course, to see how easy or hard it is to stick to these systems. Well, I should say, too, that you know Dave Ramsey did not invent this. My grandmother used it. Funnily <laughs> enough, I mentioned this. She was like, that's how I used to manage. My grandfather worked as a grocery boy for the first five years they were married. Um, and they were living in a, like, back then, because people had, you know, like a stove, you could just sort of put a stove into a room and cut a little hole for it. So they lived in a couple of rooms in his parents' house, and he was working as a grocery boy. He'd made almost no money, so she had the little envelopes, and she was telling me all about it. If that, you can do that without Dave yeah, Ramsey. I understand. You can pay off your debt without Dave Ramsey. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of the the... the Backlash against new math, um, and you know the the going back to the old techniques of long division and subtraction, and your grandmother's like, that's the way I did it, or reading. Um, but the other footnote I want to that I think is important is that in your article you do mention that you are not a religious person. That the uh, the religious component of this is not part of the appeal for you. Is that correct? Yeah, no, I'm uh, I'm basically I call myself an agnotheist. Uh-huh. Uh, I think there's a very low but non-zero chance of there being a god. Um, but actually, you know, my my fiance was raised evangelical, and that helped a lot in understanding a lot of how he talks and how things are shaped. Mm-hmm. But you definitely do not. It's it's you know, the religious message is definitely there, and if you don't want to bother overlooking it, then it's definitely not something anyone should do. But the, the core principles aren't about religion. And the core principles work whether or not you do the Dave Ramsey plan or whether you just decide you're going to do a written budget and stick to it, which is really just absolutely the most powerful part um, of what he urges and something that very few people do. Let's move to the general issue of of self-control. And I hope at the end we'll then move to the broader – some of the national questions about debt. Um, I used to teach – I don't know if I've talked about this on the program, but I, I used to teach time management uh, at the business school at Washington University in St. Louis. I'd give a seminar at the beginning of uh, the of the year for the first year MBAs on how to manage their time. And of course, it was more than how to manage your time. It was how to manage really your life, how to manage what was important, your priorities, how to make sure you didn't waste your time, how to control paper in your life. And I did it, I don't know, maybe two or three times. And then I stopped doing it because – even though I think I was a really good teacher of time management, I realized that I couldn't live by the principles myself. It seemed a little awkward. You know, they, they say those who can't do teach, but it seemed a little weird to be, be a proponent for a system that I couldn't implement on my own, even though the principles were undoubtedly correct. Uh, and I used to liken time management uh, and paper and other organizational issues to uh, dieting and, and food. And I'd say, you know, we all know how to get thinner eat less and exercise more, uh, the hard part's following through. Uh, We all know that it's not good to have the fourth slice of pumpkin pie this past weekend, uh, yet some of us do anyway. And 
I wonder what your thoughts are on this general issue of both appetite, self-control, and then systems, mechanisms that we use uh, to try to restrain ourselves and get us to think more long run than short run. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned food because um, I I briefly uh, tried to become a model in Philadelphia before it became clear that um, I was – the only thing I was good at was being tall. Um, which, is a, which is a great thing. Yes. I was, I was tall and skinny, and, but I wasn't like particularly photogenic, uh-huh. and I hated standing still. Uh, yeah. um, so I, I, I didn't last. But I met a lot of models during this, this brief phase, and, and this brief and regrettable phase in my life, and uh, they all had these really weird ways to stay thin. Because you've really never experienced anything. So you've seen a director of photography screaming at some girl with no obvious body fat whatsoever that if she doesn't lose five pounds, you know, in the next three hours, he's never going to work with her again. Um, and so they all had these weird, weird systems for managing how they ate. And one of them had a, a different color for every day of the week. And so, you know, there'd be blue day and purple day. And she really had come to believe that this somehow the chemical properties of the colors were making her lose weight. And he'd be like, no, you're eating blueberries on Monday, and that's all you're eating because it's the only blue food like, available. That's why you're losing weight. You're not taking in any calories. But a- another girl would literally eat nothing between midnight on Sunday and midnight on Friday, and then she would just gorge all weekend. I It was Horrifying. absolutely revolting <laughs> yeah, being around really her horrifying. when she was... Um, but they all have these weird systems for, because it precisely it's hard to just set up like this sensible rule where you do it. And so what you do instead is you set up forcing systems. You set up systems that make it easy to commit. And I am one of those people who periodically thinks, you know, I need an organizational system. I need a time management system. And I've just given up because I know I will never stick to any of them. And the the problem then, though, I think... What we forget is the problem, if people can't stick to it, the problem is the system, not the people. If the majority of people can't do it, which is true of all time management systems that I'm aware of, it's true of all of the weight loss programs we know of, it's true of all of the home organization schemes that, you know, all of these things, most people can't do them. Um, And it's also true of managing your money. Most people are just not able to track all their receipts and write it down. I know people who do. I have a great friend who is she's amazing. She's really organized and she writes down every single thing she spends. My dad does it, but I know that I will never do it. And so any system that starts with that premise is a failure. And so you have to set up mechanisms that will force you to do what you want to do anyway. Um, but I don't recommend uh, eating only blue foods on Mondays or, or whatever. None of those girls ended up happy. It's just a. It's really. It's fascinating to me. My my brother, who, as far as I know, is from the same genetic parents as I'm from. You never know, but I'm pretty sure he is. He appears to be a very different person <laughs> on on this dimension of say time management. Um, I, I asked him once why he was so successful, and I, I want to now turn to some of the tricks that people use uh, on themselves uh, that I'm that I find both amusing because they don't work, and occasionally they do work. So that's what's interesting about them. Uh, My brother said, oh, it's easy to be organized in his home life, say, his paperwork. He'd say, I have a rule. 
the rule is touch each paper once and only once. So you pick it up when you look at this piece of mail or this memo or whatever it is, and you decide what to do with it. You either respond to it, you file it to be responded to later or to look at later, or you put it and file it for future. I'm going to look at it at some point. What I would tend to do, I'd say that's a great rule. So I take all the papers in my desk. Uh, and I'd put them into piles, the pile of respond to immediately, the pile of file and put it in a place where I can respond to it soon, and the file of respond later. Then I'd have three piles. Then I'd start going through the piles. I could never get through them, ever, not even close. And soon I just had a bunch of piles of paper on my desk again, and it really wasn't any different than the original system I was using, which was when you got a piece of paper, put it down on your desk, look at it every once in a while, put it back down, maybe respond to it, maybe not, You know, depending on what kind of mood you're in. And yet he's able to do it. He is His desk is clean. Mine is a mess. His house is clean. Mine is messier. My wife helps a little bit, but it's still messier. Um, in fact, he probably married a wife more like him, and I married a wife more like mine, um, who's more like me. So our houses are different. Uh, it's just a fascinating thing of how hard it is to do the thing that we think we want to do. And maybe we just don't want to do it. You know, I think that we don't. Um, I, I am I am marrying someone who's way neater than I am. This is really uncommon. You know, it's almost always the woman who's cleaner. Um, and it's quite funny because we have many of the same arguments that my friends have with their husbands, but I'm playing the role of the husband. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I just don't see stuff. And I'm very clean. I hate having, you know, dirty food around or anything, but piles Clutter. of paper. Clutter. Yes, clutter can uh, can build up forever, and I'm totally happy surrounded by sort of 97 piles of books on my yep, bed. That's what I got right here. Exactly. Um, and, you know, I used to think, oh, I'm going to organize my house, I'm going to keep it that way. Um, and it turns out I don't want to. Um, I, he, he wants to, and so I do it for him. But I realized it, it makes me vaguely unhappy. I, I don't like, first of all, because the way I work, I'm very tunnel vision, and so... For him, every time he sees something that's messy, he wants to fix it. Uh, for me, it's like I have to interrupt what I'm doing and take my mind off whatever's going on and deal with little things, whereas I prefer to you know, sort of go through the whole arc and then clean at the end and focus on cleaning. But I think, you know, in general, there's all these things we want to do. We want to lose weight. We want to, um, but I think, Learn to play course, the in good. theory... What I would like is to be thinner. I don't actually want to lose weight necessarily, right? Because losing weight has an unpleasant downside. Yeah, funny how that works. Um, um, so I think, like, I have ended up, because I think I'm more like you, um, I've ended up deciding what are the areas in which I want to set up forcing mechanisms. Because I could set up a forcing system. I work from home a lot. I work in an office with um, terrible access to food. So if I wanted to be much thinner... I could set up a forcing system of just not having anything nice to eat in the house. And I would definitely lose weight, but I don't want to. Um, So, you know, things like I do want to get my bills paid on time, so I set it up so that my bank pays all my bills automatically. I do want to save money, so I I budget. But the, the other things, I think it's usually we don't do it because we want the goal, but that doesn't necessarily mean we want the whole process of getting to the goal. And if we don't, we don't don't do it. We don't want to pay the price most of the time. Exactly. Although... I think the argument of the behavioral economics literature and the psychology literature on this is, well, we do want the goal that if that when it comes time, when you turn this certain age and you never learn to play the flute, or you were you were bankrupt, or you never 
lost that weight or whatever is the issue, uh, you regret it. And the, the you know, I, I like to go the other way, and I like to say, well, I enjoyed all the you know all that ice cream. You know, it's the problem is is that the pleasure from the ice cream is fairly short lived. It does not create a lifetime of memories like the the Cancun experience. You see, the extravagant vacation does produce a lifetime of photographs and memories you can relish and enjoy. Yeah. A lifetime of um, binge eating of, of ice cream doesn't. Uh, it does just create a, a fat, unhealthy person. So there is there are some differences. But let me ask you about this issue more generally. You know, a lot of people in the behavioral economics literature uh, argue that you know this proves that people aren't rational. Uh, they they can't do what's in their own self interest, and therefore, quote, we need to do something about it. Now, the Dave Ramsey effect or the time management courses that are available from lots of, of places, and, and they're very inspiring, by the way. I love going to them. Um, <laughs> I think they're, they're, they have benefits. I don't mean to suggest that they're a waste of time. They're not. Um, these are private, voluntary self-restraints we, we potentially take on ourselves. Uh, like you say, uh, dieting, uh, various kinds, diet systems. Um, my brother has, has certain, going back to my brother, he has certain rules about where he puts his junk food in his house, and after he takes some out of the bag, he puts the bag far away, as if you know he can't figure out where it is. Uh, of course, he knows where it is, but he raises the cost to himself of going back to it. We all have little tricks like that. Some people argue we should do something uh, more coercive, either nudging people, as Sunstein and Thaler argue, or coercively uh, forcing them to do, quote, what's right. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, and what do you think uh, the behavioral economics literature has to tell us on that? Well, I, you know, I think to some, I think the behavioral economics literature is obviously very interesting. And anyone who's read the sort of the the seminal uh, Tversky and Kahneman paper can't help but be intrigued at all of these gaps in rationality, which I, I do think exist. Um, but I think a lot of the libertarian paternalism, especially the idea of nudging people um, and these or coerce or straight out coercing them. All, I never know what to do with them because they rely so heavily on time inconsistency, right? Um, they rely on this notion that what feels good now won't feel good later, and so we should change this. Well, in some cases, I, I think that's true. Um, going bankrupt is just insanely traumatic. And if we can nudge people towards not going bankrupt, okay. But gaining 10 pounds? Um, I mean, you know, I think that in some sense saying um, I would like to be thin now and so um, I shouldn't have eaten those pieces of pumpkin pie is kind of like saying, well, I would like rich people to give, I would like someone to give me a lot of money, which is true. But, you know, you've got me now and me then. And it is totally true that me now is always going to wish me then had done something different because me then is no longer around. But I'm not actually sure that this is, a valid distinction, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and especially when the problems are small, you know, being 20 pounds overweight is not actually a personal trauma up there with, say, losing both your legs in a car accident, although America often treats it as if it's worse. Um, so the kinds, a lot of the kinds of interventions they do are along those lines. I think with things like saving, it's arguably more justified because there's always the temptation to free ride of, well, if I'm really destitute, people are going to keep me alive anyway, so I might as well spend it all now and get, 
you know, whatever minimum standard of living people are willing to give me in 30 years. Um, but in general, I think that they, they rely too much on hyperbolic discounting, which is just a way of privileging future you, future, the desires of future you, over the desires of, of current you, because pumpkin pie is super delicious, and it's really valuable to be able to eat it. So um, I'm, I'm not sure. That's a very bourgeois instinct. You can die in the meanwhile, too. And I, you know, No, I'm serious. Right. Life is uncertain. The idea that you should always postpone gratification is, is a, not a – I don't think – I think it's an anti-human idea um, and, and not, not inherently good. Postponing gratification for higher, more satisfying benefits later is, is a good thing. As a general rule, though, it's not always, it's not always true. And the other thing is that future you has to keep doing the same unpleasant thing. I, mean, I remember one of these sort of society razor women coming up to me uh, in New York, you mean, you mean very thin, yeah. whip it thin. Um, she's about 80. <laughs> and she's telling me about this wonderful spa that she just went to that I should try because you could lose 30 pounds in a month there. And I thought, well, I, d- I don't want to die. <laughs> um, and also, you know, how she, she only eats ha- she eats half a chocolate every day so that she doesn't feel deprived. And, you know, this Oi. Is, she's thin. <laughs> Oi, right? that's what I say Oi. to that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, she has to, you know, future you has to keep dieting. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, maybe both current and future you would be better off if you just decided there are trivial health effects for most people of being 20 pounds overweight. So maybe you, future and current you, would be better off if you both just decided to be 20 pounds overweight, which is about how much most people's weight will fluctuate is usually when a, a 20 to 30 pound band. And that's actually not a band that again, for people who are otherwise healthy, um, that's going to have much health impact for them. Well, I apologize for misquoting Mencken. This isn't not a verbatim quote, but I always, it's the way I've remembered it. And so we'll correct it on the website, I hope. But, you know, he defined Puritanism as the haunting fear that someone somewhere is having a good time. And there's yeah. definitely, you know, there's definitely a Puritan streak in America working against our overconsumption streak, right? We have this we have this partner character that says, live for today. We can always afford it because we're always getting richer. It's sort of a permanent income hypothesis um, in our bones, I think, maybe in our national character, that since our standard of living is always going to be rising, which I believe is basically true, contrary to the mainstream, uh, since I think that's true, it's not it's not the worst attitude. But focus fighting against that in our national character and inside most of us is this um, this sometimes religious, sometimes secular influence of uh, what you might call this the um, the uh, the hair suit. The you know the I'm gonna I'm gonna suffer so that later I can suffer some more <laughs> because suffering yeah. in itself sacrifice is always good. And you're right, there is a certain um, unhealthy aspect to that as well. I'm always reminded of uh, Anatole France. Has, I believe it's Anatole France. Has this wonderful quote that uh, if if the uh, if only the hangover would precede the inebriation, mm-hmm. then drunkenness would be considered a virtue. Yeah, that's um, right. and I I think that that's, hmm, that's really a true. Line. But go, going back to the the behavioral stuff, what I find strange about it is I don't think it's so. Um, some of it's, it it creates such a straw man. Rational economic man is such a straw man. Um, most of us understand that we eat too much on Thanksgiving, and as, you, and as I think you're, you're suggesting, we like it. Um, 
Now, I'm thinking about this piece that you mentioned on your blog, uh, this interview with Dan Ariely, where he had such insights as use a smaller plate on Thanksgiving mm-hmm. if you want to restrain. And I'm thinking that's the contribution of th- – that's the great antidote to the, to rational economic man who blindly presumes to be doing what's best for himself since he knows he's not uh, – if he could only be aware of his flaws, he could take a smaller plate. It wouldn't stop me, baby. I mean, a smaller plate has never stopped me. It's just, it's not the, um, it's not so helpful. I'm really skeptical of those, all of those studies that say, you know, there, here's some little trick you can use to lose weight. Because if you think about it, a, a deficit or a surplus of, of 50 calories a day is enough to make you gain several pounds a year. Um, and if our appetites have to be calibrating our metabolisms pretty closely, right? Because otherwise we would all be grotesquely obese. Right. You know, 50 calories is like, it's not even half a candy bar. I was going to say, it's not half a chocolate. chocolate. Uh, It's it's few nuts, You have to pick a small chocolate that you can have half of, Megan. That's the key. Exactly. (laughs) So it's, it's, um, so in fact, like all of these tricks, you can observe them working at the time. You can observe someone, if you have these, my favorite is this, soup bowl that can be stealthily refilled from the bottom. And oh. so people people just ate like a, a gallon of soup. I think that you can fool people in the very short term, but you don't then observe that the guy gets out and he's like, oh God, I, you know, I don't need dinner. I'm full. Yeah. Um, you don't observe that. And so I think that actually it, it probably these tricks don't work that well. Um, but I think that in the American consciousness and it's to do with money and uh, food and a lot of other things, there's always been this warring, you know, it's funny because there's, you read, when you write about debt, and I do frequently, and you read about it, half the articles start off with this bygone era of when everyone was thrifty. Yeah. And this is just balderdash. <laughs> <Bogosh>, yeah. <laughs> um, America was filled with people who came here to escape their debts in, in Europe. Like, we've always had actually much more sort of open relationship to debt than most people, and it shows like in our bankruptcy laws, which are just unbelievably debtor-friendly to the point where when they did the bankruptcy reform, this draconian bankruptcy reform, and I was describing what the new rules would look like, and everyone in Britain, all my colleagues, I was at The Economist, I was living in London at the time, they were like, well, of course you have to reform that. That's ridiculous. How can you let people just declare bankruptcy? And, like, and I was describing the new draconian rules. Yeah. Everywhere <laughs> else, it's so much harder to declare bankruptcy you can't just, there's nothing like Chapter 7 anywhere. And so when I was describing Chapter 7, still available for 90% of people who try to declare bankruptcy, they thought I was kidding, or they thought it was some, you know, insane system that, that was going to be reformed away. Um, so we've always had this, these two attitudes toward debt, but what we've also had um, is we've had panics. And the children of those panics do behave differently. They, it's actually... You know, there's a lot of arguments about why this is, but one of the arguments about the national savings rate, you can actually see it. As the babies in generation starts to retire, the national savings rate starts to plummet. My grandfather, who also, was bo- he was born in, earlier, he was born in 1916, but he, so he was just growing up during the Depression. Um, he used to squirrel money away. Yep. Literally, my grandmother was giving like a teapot or something to the rum- rummage sale. She opened it up and there were $5,000 inside this teapot. If she my, hadn't bothered to clean it. My great uncle used to carry, um, like you, 
Uh, he didn't have an envelope. <laughs> he had he had cash, and he kept it in paper bags, grocery bags. <laughs> so when he wanted to go on a trip, it wasn't categorized. Uh, so I don't know how um, prudent he was, but he did not trust the banks, uh, which I think was a result of of living through the Great Depression. And so he kept his cash in a very safe place, sort of. Uh, uh, you know, vault's pretty safe in its own way, but he kept it in a paper bag. Yeah, there's a, a lot of people from that era, and not without reason. I've just been reading this great new book. Um, it's Benjamin Roth's Diary of the Great Depression, and his description of all of these banks in Youngstown, Ohio, going under the passbooks. There was a market in the passbooks, so that you could buy a passbook for Dollar Bank at seventy cents on the dollar. And then a bank that was less well-regarded would go for 40 cents on the dollar. And so people would buy them up, and they would use those passbooks to pay off their mortgages uh, at a gross discount. So anyone who had cash, because the banks were closed, no one could get their money out. Um, and it was a terrifying time. And so you can, and people, ultimately, a lot of people didn't end up getting, you know, 100 cents on the dollar out of the banks. And that really did infect them. They were both obsessed with saving. They were obsessed with having liquid assets after 10 years, and they were not trusting of the stock market. A lot of them didn't trust banks. Um, a lot of them didn't even trust bonds. You know, what they wanted was U.S. Treasuries, and that's why there's so many people in that generation who you'll see have just all of their savings in, like, U.S. Treasury bonds. Yeah. Um, because that's the only thing. And it's actually what you now see. This is very interesting, right? Benjamin Roth describes exactly the same phenomenon that we're now seeing. All anyone wants to have is treasury bonds, right? People are actually paying the U.S. government to take their money in some cases because they're so afraid of any other store of value for their money. And, of course, they might be wrong about that. Um, <laughs> you know, we're, we're – um, it's not as unimaginable as it was two years ago that the U.S. would default on its – nationally would a sovereign debt default for the U.S. government is imaginable now, at least to me and, and to some people. Um, let me ask you a philosophical question. I, I'm um, you know, Deirdre McCluskey is working on a very, very large and interesting project on the role of rhetoric and ideas in in economic uh, outcomes and growth and other other forms of of economic results. And I just wonder, you know, you think about the um, this issue of how the Great Depression changed a generation's ideas about uh, about debt and about various other things, but at the same time. Out of that depression grew an economic theory of Keynes, and Keynes's economic theory really is spending—you know—holds the economy up. Debt's bad. Debt's good. Uh, deficit spending is good. Uh, it's fascinating to me how much of that philosophical view is inside folks uh, without much really thinking about it. It's so widely believed, especially among journalists, for example, who write about the economy, that spending holds up the economy. Without spending, like you read things about people are hoarding their money right now. You know, they're not hoarding. They're saving like 3 to 5%, I think, the save, national saving rate, rate right. is, is, is burst into the positive range measured. I want to say, say as an aside, the measured savings rate is an awful measure of savings and is very is – very, um, the absolute level measure is very misleading. But – but the trend is clearly people are saving more than they did before, and some people view that as alarming. Um, I don't view it. I don't. I, I think that's really wise both at the individual and at the national level. But I think it's interesting how our attitudes 
toward debt and towards these issues we're talking about come from rhetoric and really inchoate ideas about you know how the world works that we sort of absorb if we're not careful. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think that so many people took the wrong lessons out of the Great Depression. Um, it's, the, the whole debate has actually been very interesting to me, right, because liberals immediately started announcing Milton Friedman was wrong, Keynes was right. And this doesn't make any sense, because Milton, it's not like there's some sort of mirror image of each other where, like, if Milton Friedman turned out to be wrong, then therefore Keynes would be right. They could both be wrong. Um, and I think they were both wrong about a bunch of things and right about a bunch of things. Um, you know, I, I think that what Keynes describes, a liquidity trap, the paradox of thrift is when you go to a restaurant and uh, you, uh, you decide to stop going to a restaurant because there's a recession, so you don't spend money. Well, that money is someone else's income. So they have less income, and so they spend less money elsewhere, and it sort of reverberates throughout the economy. That's the idea. Um, I, I that's the, the, the general me, idea. It strikes, so me get, as, it strikes me as wrong, but yeah, go ahead. Well, it's only what it leaves out is investment goods. Exactly. Right? So it really depends on where the savings go. Yeah. And I think that you actually did see in, say, November through February or March, an issue where people started saving a lot more, but the money wasn't going anywhere. It was going to banks that, that didn't do anything with it except build up their balance sheets. And so you actually did have like the, the mechanisms by which we normally translate savings into investment were broken. Um, you know, you, there weren't IPOs happening. There weren't new bond issues. All of those things had broken. So any savings that you did actually was just money pulled out of the economy. It's an interesting empirical question. I, I, I don't think it's totally true, but, but it is – there's an effect along those lines. But Carry that doesn't on. last forever, right? Like those, those kinds of traps, you know, people forget how much the government and the Fed were doing to keep the Great Depression going. There was a terrible contraction, but then you know the Fed egged it on with contractionary money supply, with staying on the gold standard, um, which required all sorts of bizarre things that you otherwise would not do in a recession, like raising interest rates. Um, and then you know you do read. I, I'm not I'm not a proponent of Amity Schles's book, The Forgotten Man, because I, where she basically blames the whole Great Depression on activist government by FDR and Hoover. Uh, because I think that some of the things that FDR did were actually very necessary, like the FDIC, like shutting down the panic so that the banking system could once again operate to translate savings into investment. So that, you know, if people aren't buying consumer goods, they're buying investment goods instead. Um, but I think that you do see it. You see a lot of the things that FDR was doing were just crazy. They were totally insane. And so... You know, obviously no one's going to invest a lot of money in a factory if they think that, you know, you're going to take all of their new investment and hand over any profits to labor. Or you're going to make their business environment so uncertain with price controls that they can't operate. Or it, I mean, He was doing a lot of things that were totally insane along with some things that were good, and I think the totally insane things did have a negative effect. Um, and, and so people forget they edit all of that out and they centralize this argument on money supply versus government spending. Um, but the Great Depression really is sui generis because the government's getting right in there and, and doing things 
keep it going in a way that we're not. Uh, the auto bailout's bad, but I don't think, you know, I think not really going to end up affecting U.S. GDP that much one way or the other. Um, I think so anyway. Hard, I think it's a little <laughs> early to tell. We'll see. I want to come um, back. I want to come back to your point about uh, Friedman and Keynes because I thought it was very interesting. And I, I mentioned this on the side. We we did a podcast with Amity Schles on her book. So if you want to read more about her uh, her view of it, it's uh, it'll be available. It's available on our website. Um, but you know, it's interesting. You said people jumped to the conclusion if Friedman was wrong, then Keynes was right. When in fact they're not mutually exclusive, and of course you're right. But what I think is interesting, and I see it in this current debate that we're having about where our country's going and what role for government is going to, what role for the government's going to have in the coming years, it really is a debate between, say, Friedman or Hayek and Keynes, uh, in the sense that, it, and the way I always think of it is, should we be more or less like France? You know, there's a group of people who want us to be more like France. There's a group of people who I would be in this latter group who want us to be less like France. Uh, and when I say more I'm or less, I'm also in that group. Yeah, but what I, <laughs> what I mean by that is I don't mean worse wine and cheese and art, uh, but I mean a larger role for the state in allocating uh, goods, creating that safety net, um, creating you know to me destroying the natural incentives we have to act like adults. And so I don't like that world. I want us to be – I want to move away from that world. And a lot of people disagree. They, they think that's a good world. So that's to me what the debate's really about. And all the arguments about the stimulus package and debt finance and liquidity trap and the Fed and the gold standard, a lot of that is window dressing, I'm ashamed to say, for what I think the real debate is. And it is a deba- – it's a debate between more freedom and less freedom. It's a debate between more – centralized control, less centralized control. And so I think in some sense that is the real debate. You know, I think it's really interesting because I'm certainly no Keynes scholar, um, but what I know about Keynesian theory doesn't actually tell you a lot about the level of spending by the government or the level of regulation. What it tells you is cyclically that the government should be operating counter-cyclically. So if you've got a deep output recession, the government should spend a lot of money. But the, it doesn't say that the average level of government spending should be high. And the, so what's odd to me is that, you know, appropriating Keynes to say that what we really need to do is per, have a permanent increase in the share of GDP that government takes up from 20 to 30 percent, which is ultimately the debate I think we are having, is totally bizarre and has nothing to do with whether or not stimulus spending works or is a good idea. You know, stimulus spending should not be permanent spending. Uh, but um, it's sure is hard to imagine that that's not going to be the case, right? I mean, right. let me say that without double negatives. I, I think the, some of the advocates of stimulus spending have in mind a larger federal budget whether down the road, and whether that's because of inertia or some kind of other justification I don't think is so important to them. No, and I, I think that that's, it's really, it's, it's sneaky, right? I mean, at least when you're pushing Friedman, you can say you're pushing consistently, um, you know, you're pushing freer markets and uh, a vision of the money supply, and he held both of those views, um, and they're consistent, right? If you, if you say you want freer markets and, and less government involvement, um, hand in hand with that, you say, I think the Federal Reserve, rather than, uh, U.S. government fiscal policy is the right place to handle 
uh, all but the worst recessions, at least. Um, well, I think the proponents of the Keynesian view are pretty honest about what else they care about. I, I don't – I'm not sure th- – there's some sneakiness to it, I suspect, on both sides. I, I think the – I just wish we'd have the real conversation. You know, it's it's not yeah. really about whether the public option, say, in healthcare is a good idea or not. And it's whether the government should have a larger role in healthcare than than not. And I and you know the the idea that somehow we shouldn't um, gum up the current healthcare system with government is kind of funny because the government's rather actively involved in the current healthcare system. So I just think a lot of our national debates on these issues are marred by. Um, um, misdirection, sleight of hand. Well, and I think that what's really interesting to me, and I wrote a post about this a couple of days ago, is that both groups of people are using you know, the left and the right at this point. And I'm talking about serious economic analysts. I'm not talking about politicians on the stump because politicians on the stump apparently have a sacred obligation to say things that make no economic sense. Um, they're using the same set of data to argue about two completely different things. And, but they're arguing with each other as if the other person is arguing about the same thing. And what I mean by this is Paul Krugman is talking about deficits and how big they can get. And he is at, at least says that he is talking about the deficits in the context of the cyclical deficit. He wants a big st- stimulus package because he thinks that Keynesian stimulus is a good idea. Um, and he's talking about our, you know, the whole national debt picture, because our national debt is scheduled to basically double um, by 2019. He's talking about all of this in the context of the cyclical deficit. And now all of the, the libertarian and conservative pundits, including me, are talking about the, the structural deficit, which is that when you look out in 2019, there's still $750 billion sitting there gap. It's 6% of GDP, of projected GDP. And that's huge. And we need to close that. I don't, you know, the stimulus may or may not be a good idea, but economically, it's not going to cripple the United States uh, to run a huge deficit in one year. We managed to do it in World War II for several years and, and, and come out on the other side. The issue is if the government permanently can't get its fiscal house in order. And you talked about defaults. Um, I don't know that I think, I don't think it's likely, but yes, I think that the, it's looking worse because we are faced with this gigantic structural deficit. So the problem is not that in 2019 our debt will be 80% of GDP. That is a problem. But the real problem is that it doesn't stop in 2019. It gets another 6% of GDP on top of it. But and then you, another 6 Don't you realize that the, that the growth rate's going to creep up and then shoot forward because we're going to all have this confidence? And that debt will look trivial, right? I mean, we're all gonna, we're all selling a free lunch, right? It just depends on what uh, mechanism we're invoking to explain why it's a free lunch. And of course, but, he could be right. He could well, be right. Could he? Because I, I think that, yeah. like, what we learned, you know, wh- I love saying that. Think, by the way, he could. <laughs> yes, he could be. See how see how open minded I am. Um, I think that what we learned from the experience of the sixties and seventies is that while Keynes could have been right about short-term stimulus, the, the government, the economists then confused it, right? They decided that long-term stimulus, you should be doing it all the time. Because, like, those people who think that if one splash of cologne is good, eight will be better. Um, and Same so, with pumpkin pie. <laughs> exactly. So what we found out is that that doesn't work. Ultimately, you get inflation and output returns to trend. You cannot keep output like, permanently above, um, above trend. 
um, you can get it back there, maybe with stimulants, but you can't keep it above. So, no, I mean, trend growth in the United States is 3%. We can't run a 6% budget deficit because eventually the, the mismatch will become too big and our creditors will stop being willing to lend us money at attractive rates. Um, so I don't see, you're not going to get, you know, the, the World War II production leap came after 10 years of underproduction. I don't see that next, I don't see that by 2019. So I, I don't, I, I want to be open-minded. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, we've got a big problem with, uh, with our debt and we've got a huge political problem because so much of it is owed to China and other countries. Yeah, I mean, what fascinates me is, you know, there's two things we've talked about many times on this program. One is inflation, uh, whether it's going to come or not. And it's um, hard to say, uh, but I'm worried about it. The other is, I didn't realize this, but evidently we've been issuing a lot of short-term debt um, naturally to take advantage of the lower interest rates that short-term debt usually has. And as a result, rolling that debt over this year is going to be rather tricky. Uh, I just read a recent account. I don't remember where I saw this, but uh, we might end up having to borrow $3 trillion this year, $2 trillion to pay off the short-term debt that's coming due and another trillion of expenditures above in income receipts, uh, tax receipts, that might be tricky. There might not be I $3 think, trillion dollars worth of borrowing, lending people want to do the United States at current interest rates. Maybe there will talking, be. <laughs> um, I think you're talking about the article by Edmund Andrews in the New York Times, and this is a big problem. And it's actually interesting because it mirrors how mortgages, uh, residential mortgages used to work. Yeah, it's the same, the, these, same trick. These giant balloon payments. Yeah. And people would just roll them over. And they got used to, you'd have a five-year mortgage, and you probably weren't going to pay it off at the end, but you might get a smaller one, and you'd roll, you'd roll the loan over again. And then in the 30s, people couldn't roll them over, and all of a sudden, the, the whole system came unstuck. Um, and that's, that's the real fear, is, you know, and why when people say, well, interest rates are low, they're very attractive, well, the, first of all, the Federal Reserve is buying so much of this debt right now yep. that... It's hard to it's hard to say what the price, what the real price is without all of this Fed intervention in the markets. Um, but second of all, it's short term, and people don't worry about default risk uh, on their three month notes because the United States is not going to default on their debt in the next three months. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll give you zero point one percent, probably, probably. probably. Mm. Uh, barring. But you know, if aliens invade and and destroy the United States, then like you have bigger worries than whether or not. Um, the United States has paid off its three-month debt to you. Um, but at the longer terms, you know, when we start, and we are, there's now um, at least inklings of a plan of it to convert our national debt to longer-term debt. Um, you, know, you can kind of think of this as rolling your credit card debt into your house. Yeah. Uh, it's tricky. <laughs> um, on the one hand, you, you, know, you have more security about your future interest rates and so forth, um, but on the other hand, it's uh, it's often harder to get people interested um, yep. because they have less flexibility. And you know, when we start moving all of this debt over into longer-term securities, where are the interest rates going to be on those? When we have to generate you know a trillion dollars worth of new demand for thirty-year bonds, um, it's it's hard, and it also means that, you know, we're really bequeathing this problem to our children, and people talk about that a lot, um, and it's sometimes true and, and, and sometimes not. But in this case, it really is. It's, you know, let, let's 
shove the bulk of this off onto people, many of whom aren't born yet, um, when you talk about a 30-year bond. So, yeah, well, my, my feeling is um, things are going to either unravel or get fixed long before we get into that that particular solution. I, I don't know. I, it seems to me the lesson is Congress just needs to have a lot of different envelopes and use cash. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is – now you see Congress, uh, <laughs> they write out a budget, but they don't stick to it. They don't live by they it. Have, this is actually, I think, it, it, it does sort of bring it all home, is they don't have a credible commitment mechanism nope. to stick to no. the budget that they write down. Nope. Um, and they aren't willing to say, if I don't have the money, it doesn't go out the door. There's some good, um, news. There's some good news about that, by the way. I always, I always find it funny when people are talking about the future liabilities of the government. They talk about Social Security and Medicare. Those aren't liabilities. Those are campaign promises they're not going to keep. They're going to change the law. It's, that's not the problem. That is not the problem. The law as written is not sustainable. So they're going to change it. That, that's not the issue. The issue is politically what's the fight over how to change it. The mix of benefit cuts, income means testing, uh, age retirement push changes. They'll figure something out. It won't not be what we desire. That's the problem or what anybody desires. And I think that, that too, what a lot of people really underweight um, especially sort of the, what I like to think of as like the apologists for Social Security, who say it's a small fix, all we need is 3% of GDP or something, which is a, yeah. a very large number. Yes, I mean, it is. 3% of my annual income wouldn't be easy to just keep coming up with every year, but um, especially when you consider after tax. But uh, that that uh, the government doesn't pay taxes, but it, the, the pain of it is, yeah, uh, is after tax income. But um, is that people plan their lives around these things. And to the extent that at this point there's no... I mean, first of all, there are some people who just don't... They don't think about it, right? Like, they don't they don't understand the problems of the U.S. government budget. They're busy trying, trying to lead to their lives. Life, yeah. um, and so they just assume that Social Security will be there for them. Um, and then there are other people who just... You, you kind of have to assume it will be there because there's no um, clarity on what it is going to be like and where the cutoffs are going to be and so forth. So people plan their lives around it, and when you have to change it, as we will, I agree with you, when you have to change Medicare, well, you've destroyed the the market for health insurance for people over the age of 65 who aren't working. You've you've caused everyone, you've taken a bunch of money out of people's paychecks and caused them to plan on Social Security. Those people will be worse off than they would be if there were no program. And the longer you leave it, the more people you have who will be worse off. And that's the problem that I think really gets under, under sort of sold when you're talking about all of these issues. Now, the flip side is every, I think most people under the age of 40 assume they're not going to get a penny. And uh, I think they'll be wrong. I think they'll get a penny, <laughs> uh, maybe just a penny, but uh, they, they will get something, I suspect. Uh, but I think people go the other way. They don't count on it at all. Instead of saying, well, I'll get half of what I expected. They say, I'm going to pretend it's dead. Just to- but, you know, it's, I have a Fidelity 401k account, and they have all these tools for projecting what you'll get. Yeah. And, like, you can't tell it, just assume that I don't have Social Security, yeah, right? It's true. And so it's hard, to, it's hard to do the kind of planning where, because all of these automated tools, which are what most people under 40 like me have, I don't, can't really afford a financial planner. I guess I could do it. I could do it myself. So this is a, this is a cop-out. But most people <laughs> are not able to, to run those kinds of, massive uh, spreadsheets by themselves. 
um, there's no way to assume to assume it away. They assume that it's all going to be paid. There's no way to assume that, for example, your Roth IRA might get taxed. Yeah, um, which is a thing that I. One of the reasons that I don't have, um, I don't have a Roth IRA, is I actually think that the odds of those remaining untaxed um, are kind of low. Whereas or with a traditional IRA, I feel like it's not being taxed now, and I can see that. No, it's a big. It's a, I mean, you point to really what I think is a crucial problem we have right now, which comes back to the Great Depression and our analysis of it. And I, you know, I think this is really Bob Higgs's story, which is regime uncertainty. The the chain constant fluctuations in the rules of the game make it very hard to plan for the future, and make people very uh, anxious and uh, and um, not so eager to take chances, which is very hard. And I think that's why you get a flight away from credit, a flight to cash. Yep. I mean, credit in some way is like on both sides. It's an expression of confidence in the future. No doubt and, about it. You know, it, what we realize is. It's easy to get overconfident, and therefore you, you want to be careful with it. And so now you end up with people like me who are, you know, looking forward to paying off all of my debt and, and you know, not having it anymore, not, not expressing confidence in that way. <laughs> well, we look forward to your future um, blogging on, on your, your, your quest to conquest your debt, uh, which I am uh, happy to see is, is on its way. My, my guest today has been Megan McArdle. Megan, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.